Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is uh, June the 9th. It is episode 169. Yeah, we have a big show coming up. This is probably the longest show we've ever done, just mm. from the amount of, in- like, just from looking at the times of the interviews we've already recorded, because, you know, a uh, pretty tough week for Australia, a lot of rallies, a lot of anger in the streets, and Pete and I were thinking, okay, people come to this podcast, they want to be entertained, and hopefully we do a good job at that, uh, but they also want to be informed, and there's a whole lot of questions out there right now about Australians' relationship with race and uh, prisons and uh, just the criminal justice system in general, and that's not exactly a topic that's funny in and of itself. So we wanted to talk to people that really know about this stuff and really get deep dive into it. It is probably more intellectual than most of the shows we do, we uh, so. in a, not in a crowded field, I might add, but we do have Warren Mundine AO, former president of the Labor Party, uh, liberal candidate last election. People, I think, know who he is, multiple author as well. Warren Mundine, he's going to be talking about uh, his reactions to the protests what he thinks of Australia's relationship with race. I mean, some of the stuff he was talking about, what he experienced when he was a kid. Mm. And I just go, well, that that's racism. Mm. And I'm so glad that we don't live in a country right now where that stuff's okay anymore. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him about that. Defund the police is the movement. I mean, we're going to be talking that, that. That's like a recurring theme through the show. But Warren Mundine's a great chat. Then we're going to be talking to criminal justice person here at the IPA, Andrew Bushnell, really get into what the Black Lives Matter, uh, the questions they raise, the claims they make, the demands they make, we put them to Andrew Bushnell as fair as we can and then we talk through his response to it. It's, mm. you know, it, it's a different vibe than the usual show, but I think it's a really good one. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, this is, uh, of course, Andrew's time to shine. He's been doing criminal justice reform for four years and now it's right on the front of the national agenda and a lot of the research and solutions he's created are absolutely meet the demands of what everyone's talking about so big week for bushy mm. and it was a great interview so check it out all right should we get into it we should uh so protests in melbourne okay yep so well around australia there were tens of thousands of people oh, sorry <laughs> australia yes sorry. who attended who attended protests on the weekend regarding indigenous incarceration aboriginal deaths in custody as mentioned we're going to get into that with warren and andrew uh we said on friday that Vicpol wouldn't be finding protesters but as we were recording they said they'd be finding the organisers. So mm. that did change. We're not uninformed buffoons all the time. We were actually uh, recording when that announcement yeah. was made. You can call us uninformed buffoons, mm. but you can't call us uninformed of yeah. that word. Exactly right. Uh, so now they're saying they're going to find the organisers 1,600, but I have, as far as I can tell, no one's actually been fined yet, James. And uh, Canada Australia MP Nick Demetto up in Queensland said all COVID fines should be ripped up as over the weekend uh, people were out protesting. And I think this is something that pretty people are pretty filthy about. Yeah, and understandably so. I mean, mm. we said on the show, like, I don't see... Because, yeah, so in Victoria, the organisers were fined. New South Wales, they went through a Supreme Court back and forth over whether or not the protests would go ahead. Ultimately, they did. Mm. Queensland, uh, same thing. Queensland police said no fines had been issued despite the protesters clearly defying COVID-19 mm. restrictions. I don't see how you can hand out fines anymore. Like, if, mm. if these things aren't fined, then we're back on. I, I, I just, I can't see it. It's a pretty, t- like, any copper out there who's trying to give someone a fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I was ha- sitting for ca- uh, sitting for breakfast in a cafe yesterday, mm. and I was clearly not 1.5 metres away from the person closest mm. to me, and I thought, like, should I move? And I thought, 
going to be a brave copper that tells me to move after yeah. yesterday. I couldn't do whatever I want. Now, I want to zone in on uh, the protests in Melbourne because if they say that, okay, we're going to pro- uh, we're going to find the organisers, uh, I think we need to take a leaf out of Mr. Burns's playbook from The Simpsons and just say that any large gathering we do from now on was organised by a duck. And if we all go to the footy and when the police go, okay, who organised you all going to the footy? We hand over Professor Quackers and the police find the duck and the rest of us are okay. So I like, I guess, about 60% of our listeners have absolutely no idea what James I, is talking about, but I assume this is a Simpsons reference. Yes, so Mr. Burns, for legal purposes, uh, made a duck the chairman of the nuclear power plant, so he couldn't get sued. But there I think go. it's a good uh, indicator of where we could go. Uh, now... Another thing we should talk about with regards to the protests is, uh, one, you know, call me a soy boy, but I'm just so glad that there wasn't mass scales of violence as we've seen overseas. So yeah, I'm just like, phew. That doesn't make you, why would that make you a soy boy? Oh, because, you know, uh, well done people for not beating people up is kind of a low bar to set for your fellow man, but mm. uh, I am glad. Anyway, I want to talk about uh, statues going oh, down. Can I in, just, I've got one more go Sorry about that. I just wanted to point out that my housemate Harry works at the Alfred. And yep. People in the coronavirus Shout clinic. Out to Harry. I don't think Harry listens. He gets all my talking points at home. But he, people were turning up to the Alfred yesterday to get COVID tests because they'd been at the protests. Mm. So yeah, you. They were pretty happy about it as well. Isolate <laughs> if you went to that protest. Uh, all right, so Statues. over in the UK, there were also protests. They got a bit out of hand compared to the ones in Australia. A uh, couple of statues hit the ground. A couple mm. of statues got defaced. So the one I want to hone in on is a statue of Winston Churchill in London, yeah. uh, which got defaced. And then, like, uh, it, it was, you know, Winston Churchill is like the placard on the statue, and then someone underneath wrote, was a racist, mm. uh, which is now being removed, interestingly enough, by a cleaner named Winston. So small world. But... Uh, <laughs> What I want to talk about is there's this internet <laughs> meme that pops up in regards to Antifa that D-Day, and because the commemoration of D-Day just passed, yeah. uh, the D-Day was the biggest Antifa rally in the world because they fought fascists. Hmm. Now, you can have that, but you can't also have Churchill was a racist because I hate to break it to people that think like that, Churchill was the guy in charge when D-Day was a thing. So... Yeah. I don't know. Either it wasn't an anti- the largest Antifa rally ever or you're okay with Churchill. Yeah. I think you have to pick one. Uh, you definitely have to pick one. And I love people comparing themselves, you know, storming the beach at Normandy to throwing a brick through a Starbucks. Yeah. Like, you know, you're really on the same page, you two. The thing about Churchill getting branded a racist is, is, you know, you see all these people around the world taking the knee, apologising for their white privilege, thinking, you know, if I just do this, if I share a few links with my mates and apologise for being white, no one will think I'm a racist. Winston Churchill defeated the biggest racist in history and it still wasn't enough. Mm. So don't worry about it. Like the thing about Hitler, James, is that he was literally a Nazi. And Winston <laughs> Churchill <laughs> Winston Churchill defeated him and it still wasn't enough for these people. No, and it never will be. So The other thing I want to say, like with statues, if you're looking to win over the people that are on the fence and maybe they're not, but if you would like to win over people on the fence throwing down a statue, stamping on it in the middle of a London or, you know, mm. I, th- I think uh, Dover was the other place. Bristol. Was, Bristol. Not the way to go about it. Like, I just see those images and I go, okay, I don't want you to win. Without knowing the context, I just saw a statue go down and people jump on it and I just go, you don't get to win this one. See, the thing about the statue coming down in Bristol was that I saw that and I went, wow, this is pretty shocking. But then I realised when people tore down Saddam Hussein, Hussein's statue in Iraq I was like how good's this so I don't think all statues going down are bad 
Uh, so that was my first reaction to that. This guy's an interesting case. Uh, what's his name? Edward Colston in Bristol. So there's these guys all around Bristol, right? Because uh, he was a slaver and he was involved in a company that transported 80,000 people from Africa to America as slaves, which was really bad. But he gave a lot of his wealth to the poor people of Bristol, which is why there's uh, so many... Um, which is why there's statues for him, right? Because he gave all his money to orphanages and things like that. So it's, it is interesting because some of these characters aren't that, you know, good uh, in history. So, and the suggestions like maybe we should put, you know, extra, what's the word? Extra writing under the statue so you can see everything they've done, not just the good stuff. Um, I would rather see that. And sort of, as you say, rather than tearing it down and throw it, because they threw that in the harbour as well. Mm. Uh, maybe, you know, a discussion about, you know, the complicated nature of history, things like that. Because I think, I mean, Churchill definitely said racist things yeah. in his life, but also defeated Hitler. So it's an interesting discussion. That, that's, to me, that's that's the big one. Like yeah. the whole defeating Hitler thing, that's the big one. And, and you're right, like uh, they're, they're products of history mm. and they're not going to live up to 21st century standards because yeah. they didn't live in the 21st century and they don't know our standards. Yeah. That's another part. And also I think if you've got a Che Guevara t-shirt, that should have a note on it saying that yeah. he put gay people in concentration and camps. And threw them off roofs. Uh, yeah. Now, all right, so the other meme that's come out of um, the protests around the world is this idea of, like, defund the police. I'm seeing this pop up on my Facebook yes. and Twitter feed all the time. Uh, this it, It's gone through Minneapolis City Council. So uh, if you'll pause for one second, I've got the actual statement on my phone. But it's basically the idea that if you give police resources into other areas of the community then eventually you won't need police anymore. So Minneapolis Council uh, said, we're here today to begin the process of ending the Minneapolis Police Department and creating a new transformative model for cultivating safety in Minneapolis. We recognise we don't have all the answers about what a police-free future looks like, but our community does. We're committing to engaging with every willing member of commu- willing community member in the city of Minneapolis over the next year to identify what safety looks like for you. That would definitely just be another police yeah, force. I, 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 that, well, that's kind of the thing of just going... All right, so there's been a few other ways. So uh, there's this group, MPD150, that want to police-free Minneapolis, et cetera, et cetera. So are we over police? Could some money be moved around so there's, like, less militarization of the police and they're not, you know, using uh, retired army vehicles and stuff like mm. that? Sure, I'm on board with that. But when you say that we can move funding enough that we will create a society where we don't need the police anymore because everyone will just be so good. Like, I w- I'd like to be as good-looking as Brad Pitt, and <laughs> that's just not going to happen, and nor are we ever going to get to a point where society doesn't need people that's going to enforce the laws that we set. Yeah. It's just going to, like, people can be as educated as they want, people can have as much access to the dignity of work as they can get. Mm. All this stuff can be true, but there are people that are just going to uh, want to break into someone's house and take things or yeah. are going to get drunk and see someone on the street and hit them. Yeah. And if you don't have the police, who do you want? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, people, minorities living in crime riddled suburbs probably <clears> don't want you to defund the police. I was looking, when I was reading about this on the computer that I have, um, there was a headline that came up. So I was reading about this on the ABC website and then the, uh, a, li- a headline came up on the side of another story. Night of Terror ended on Perth Freeway with man revealing he had a body in his car boot. Mm. Please don't defund the police. Please, no. That guy didn't, that guy needs to talk to the police <laughs> that's, that's for a very long period of time. Criminal justice reform and more spending will not help that guy. And the final thing I'd say about this is Trump absolutely loves this because now he can say, oh, the Democrats want to get rid of the police. Yeah, like so it's he, getting asked of Biden. Now Biden said he doesn't want to defund the police, but if that's even like a talking point that high up in the Democrat party, then yeah. it's good news for Trump. The other thing I would say is like, okay, let's practically imagine a future without police and okay. who gets to protect themselves. Hmm. Because let me tell you this, 
It's just rich people with private security firms mm. that are going to be able to protect their property and the poor people will just be left to fend for themselves. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know who these community service officers that they put up are. They sound like police officers to me. But, it, you know, if that's a future you want, then come to terms with the fact that that is a future you want because I don't want any part of that one. That's right. And it, this is interesting what you're talking about because at the moment it's just this empty talking point and no one quite knows what it means. But once they start putting together the thing that they want instead of the police, it will resemble the police yeah. in great detail. Yeah. It was like, okay, we need – this is a meeting. It's like, okay, we need people yeah. that go around uh, and protect people and they're big and strong because they need to be bigger than the people they're mm. protecting and they should wear some sort of uniform. Mm. So we know who they are. So we know who they are. And, and maybe badges just so like there's like a level of community engagement or if there are bad actors, we can follow them. Give them guns so Give they them can... Sometimes. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you'll come up with the police. Yeah. Uh, so that's the protest wrap-up. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about with uh, Warren Mundane and, and Bushnell, so we don't want to go over the same grounds too many times in the one show. So let's move on to uh, Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton, metadata. So Department of Home Affairs Peter Dutton has been in contact with various non-law enforcement agencies to give them access to Australians' metadata. Now, metadata, as George Brandes famously described it in 2014, is the envelope holding the letter as opposed to the letter itself. That's the way it's described. So it's basically website URLs. So it tells you what websites, tells law enforcement agencies what website you've been to and when, but not what you've actually been looking at. However, what we've found with the URLs is that they can very much tell you, tell whoever sees them what is at the URL. So it might be like, you know, what, what is this rash I've got on my arm? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Gregory's innersecrets.org, yeah, so, which is uh, my personal website. So that's the thing about metadata. And uh, we had the Telecommunications Interception and Access Amendment Data Retention Act of 2015, which gave criminal agencies like the Federal Police access to them, access to people's metadata to stop terrorism and organised crime and things like that. But now it's emerged... And as we said at the time, it's emerged under an FOI quest from Comms Day. Dutton has been in correspondence with various agencies from the country, states and territories for their inclusion on the list, including stuff like the Australian Consumer Law Regulators from each jurisdiction. So that means New South Wales Fair Trading, the Queensland Office of Fair Trading, etc. Uh, and in 2019, the Australian Tax Office also asked for access to Australians' metadata. So the two things we always say about metadata is one – that the number of agencies who access it expands over time, which is absolutely what is happening here. Hasn't happened yet, but it's in the process of potentially happening. And metadata is not metadata. Metadata implies that it is the data is meta, but actually you can tell a great deal of specificity what is people looking at with a web page URL, a fact that Commonwealth Ombudsman Michael Manthorpe admitted at a Senate inquiry last year. So just wanted to keep you updated on that, that we're always right <clears throat> and we we're right. But download COVID safe. Yeah. Uh, they'll get rid of that the second coronavirus is over. Yep. Just download it. They will never Nothing abuse to worry about. your data at all or give it to other people. Let's head into Heroes and Villains. This, uh, you know, we'll talk about the heroes first. They've got the peak freedom snort. <laughs> The, the snort that Grunt the Pig, the Freedom Pig, the Pig of Freedom, mm. bestows on people that have stood up for good things around the world this week. So, Pete, uh, who is your hero? Be like Grunt. Uh, my hero is a bloody good one, James. Ron Manners. Yes. Now, Ron Manners is in charge of... Very, Man very good selection. Yeah, it is. It is. He's a great bloke, Ron Manners. So, if you don't know who Ron Manners is, uh, he is in charge of Mancal over in the over in the West, 
which is a fantastic organisation which enables young people to uh, pursue economic activ- uh, not economic uh, educational activities to forward to push forward. I'll just read the mission. Our mission to develop future free market leaders remains the same. We promote free enterprise, limited government and individual initiative for the benefit of all Australians. And they send students around Australia and around the world to... A lot of friends of the podcast have come through the the Mancal system. Yeah, well, we've had people here at the IPA from the Mancal system. Anyway, Big Ron Manners was on the Queen's birthday honours list as an officer AO in the General Division of the Order of Australia, distinguished service to the minerals and mining sectors and to youth through philanthropic support for education. Mancal sent 2,000 people around the world, as I've said. Uh, he's also obviously involved in mining. Man West is 125 this year, and Ron reckons he's one of the longest continuing family f- firms in the state. Uh, I've met Ron. He's a terrific bloke. He's a giant of freedom in this country. Always full of beans. Like he's getting on in age, but he's always full of beans. Tom Palmer, giant of freedom around the world, gave uh, Ron a huge wrap-up on Facey. Uh, and if you're a young person in WA, check out Mancal's programs because there's a lot of great opportunities. Ron Manners, you bloody legend. Yep. Uh, Grant Freedom, and, of the week. Yeah, and congratulations on uh, the slightly less significant of the award of the Queen's Birthday Honours List. I it's mean, you aim for Grant right. and then you'll settle for the Queen's Birthday, but yeah. Ron gets both. This is a real prize. Now, my one, not as good as Ron Manners, uh, but I do want to highlight this one. So Kevin Rudd uh, has come out on the uh, University of Queensland versus Drew Pavlo case. Mm. Says some pretty interesting things. I didn't go, no, think Kevin Rudd was going to go down this path, but here was his quote. The university is now seen around Australia and the world as bending the knee to Beijing rather than just dealing with a badly behaved undergraduate. It's time for Chancellor Peter Varghese to, um, no idea how to pronounce that, uh, to act now to restore Drew Pavlo's right to complete his degree while requiring Pavlo to adhere to the same social media protocols as the rest of us. Uh, now, I don't know what I'm more impressed by, Kevin Rudd saying something sensible or just that he was able to string two coherent sentences together without calling Rupert Murdoch the great Satan of the world. <laughs> yeah. Like, for, uh, Take whichever one you want, but that is the reason he's the grunt and pig freedom snort this week for me. Yeah, a couple of reasons there. No, good on you, Kevin. You're obviously right, and uh, you know it's always good. We don't, as we always say, we don't play the man, we play the ball. Mm. And Kevin's right on this. So yes. You're over nominee. Hey, if someone I've made fun of previously wants to come forward onto the good side of things, mm. I vow to stop making fun of them unless it's really funny. Yeah. So, balls in your cot. Good on you, right. Mr. Uh, talk us through the villains, Pete. Yes. Well, as we know, we have we have the Grant the Freedom Pig Award, but for if you're a villain and you act against freedom, we give you Extinction Rebellion Fake Nudie Run Award. Mitch, run the tape, mate. More than 300 arrests have been made across Australia as Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Okay, now that is obviously a bunch of people protesting in the end of the world, doing a nudie run but not getting nude. So that's pretty disgraceful. James, who is your Extinction Rebellion run? Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run award for this week. So as I said earlier in the show... Protests over in London got a bit more out of hand than in Australia. Mm. And I want to zone in... Okay, so there's it's a two-part villain. So mm. first up, at these protests, people were being very mean to a police horse. Like, obviously, like there were cops there that were on horses for crowd control purposes. Uh, stuff was thrown at the horse. One horse got spooked and bolted and, you mm. know, it was a bit of a health and safety hazard to all involved. I think the officer is okay after getting thrown off. Uh so that's bad. Don't don't be mean to horses. Like <laughs> I, I I find it very weird. I have to tell far left activists to do that, but don't be mean to horses. 
anyway, the second part of this is how it's getting reported. So here is CNN's oh, no. tweet. Here we go. Uh, sorry, CNN's headline: Police horses, police horse causes havoc at London protest. Come. On. And then another headline from CNN: Thousands join Black Matter protest in London as bolted police horse causes panic. I wonder what made it bolt. <laughs> yeah. Like what pot? Like did it leave the kettle on at home and had to get back, or like yeah. you know forgot to set the de- like the Foxtel to record something. I think uh, maybe the protesters might have made it bolt and that's why it bolted. So do we have... What what was it that caused it specifically to bolt? Do they chucking stuff or... I I, I haven't seen the footage, but... uh, Let's let's be honest. Mm. Uh, I don't think it just you know did anything other than freak out about the amount of protesters. I didn't know there was going to be people at this riot. And then Owen Jones tweeted, "Ban police horses from protests." Oh come on, Owen. Because apparently victim blaming is okay if they're your victims. Yeah. So it's if like what, what was a horse doing there? Anyway, what that is you, my villain. There. What, what's his argument for that? That was just a tweet, which is about <laughs> as far as Owen Jones goes these days. Now, Pete, your villain. A horse with horses. Everyone loves horses. Okay. Well, my villain is also a. a is also a serious one. GoFundMe uh, for burning cans at Candace Owens' fundraising page. So Michael Dykes is the owner of Parkside Cafe in Birmingham, Alabama. This guy, Michael Dykes, had sent a text to a couple of employees about the Blacks, Black Lives Matters protest, saying that the cafe should increase their prices because they're losing all this money because of the protests, calling the protesters idiots, and saying employees who participated in the protests should resign. He said George Floyd was a thug who didn't deserve to die, but honouring a thug is irresponsible. That was the nature of his texts. Now, these ended up on Facey because an yep. employee put them on Facey. Uh, as a result, there were all these, the, the venue was basically boycotted by people and he was in a lot of trouble financially because of that. Now, Candace Owens set up a GoFundMe for... Uh, the joint, <laughs> I've written the joint here, uh, which raised a couple of hundred K before it was taken down by GoFundMe. Now, GoFundMe said they would, quote, suspend the account associated with Candace Owens and GoFundMe campaign has been removed because of a repeated pattern of inflammatory statements that spread hate, discrimination, intolerance and falsehoods against the black community at a time of profi- profound national crisis. As a result of this, Candace Owens has been doxxed and received death threats. So my villa, look, you know, GoFundMe are a private enterprise. They can host whoever they want. They can refuse to serve whoever they want. Yeah, I can't say I love those text messages from that cafe owner. That's right. That's right. But Candace Owens, you know, this company talks about giving voices to African-Americans. I'm sure they all send their texts around to their staff saying, read this, you know, to become educated. Candace Owens is obviously a young uh, African-American woman. Uh, And so do the cowards at GoFundMe say they care so much about African-Americans uh, as long as those pesky black people doesn't agree with them, you absolute hypocritical bigots, you are my villain this week. Uh, strong words. Strong words from Peter Gregory. I googled right. what bigoted meant and they are bigots. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure it was exactly right. Bigot just means someone who's discriminatory. All right, there we go. All right, uh, that is it for the start of the show. Let's go to interviews with uh, Warren Mundine first mm. and then Andrew Bushnell. Cool. Okay, we now welcome on to the show someone I'm really excited mm. to talk to, Warren Mundine, AO, author of uh, recent books Black and White and Warren Mundine Speaking His Mind, uh, former national president of the Australian Labor Party. So someone uh, very uh, across the issues that are going on right now across the country, someone uh, who's going to bring a lot of uh, good stuff to say. So, Warren, I'll start off with protests across the country last week what were your thoughts and reactions to it both in the lead up and then after the protests well uh, to, to the lead up it, I thought uh, there was a, a very much a lack of uh, of leadership to make sure that uh, putting it out that in a time look people have a you know we live in a free society people have a right to promote, protest peacefully and that 
but in, we're in a pandemic, uh, and also every health official I know, every every doctor, uh, every medico, they've all made it quite plain that if uh, COVID-19 gets into the Aboriginal community, it will be a disaster because of the chronic illnesses that affect that, uh, our community. And so, uh, so I was uh, quite disgusted in that leadership by the politicians and also in regard to the, the, the people who were organising uh, uh, the, the protest because there, better, there could have been other ways of doing it. You know, we had the, Australia, uh, the uh, Anzac Day uh, memorial services cancer. So what did people do? They got on their front lawn. They, they, they got in uh, uh, social distancing in little groups with candles and that, and it became a groundswell of uh, community support for the memorial service for for, the, uh, the, for Anzac Day and for our servicemen and women and supporting them. It was a real strong moment. Now, they could have thought of something like that. They could have thought of other things that could have been safe. My concern now is that there's probably one or two things that are going to come out of this. Uh, in 14 days' time, we will know uh, that, that the pandemic has uh, ravaged uh, Indigenous communities and uh, through death and, and, and through um, uh, you know, getting infected, or we will know that uh, it's now uh, it, it didn't, and that it's now time to start lifting some of these uh, restrictions so we can get the economy moving again. Uh, and also, I, I, look, you know, they always talk about truth. Uh, you know, truth uh, speaking, truth. A lot of this, a lot of this uh, leadership, indigenous leadership, and that. Well, you know, I like to have a, a few uh, talk about a few truths too. You know, there was a, a police officer in Queensland who who went on the uh, 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 the Ben Fordham radio show this morning, and and he's a, a, an Aboriginal policeman. Uh, he's uh, he uh, said, look, you know, I got angry. As I usually don't say anything. I got angry when uh, one of the placards said the the best copper is a dead copper, and he so I had to say this. So he he, he, he cut down the figures. Of, of you know something like the 430 something deaths that, uh, that happened since 1991 was in, in, in custody. 56% of them had been normal natural causes. So someone's had a heart attack uh, in jail, or they old age, or they had some other chronic illness. You know, a very bad case of diabetes. That that's what they died. Of. They didn't die of any police brutality. Uh, they didn't die of any corrective officers' brutality. They just died. And then there was, and then there, you know, you look at uh, uh, the rest of that. You look at 33% in regard to suicide and 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 and, and other uh, issues and drugs and uh, that they've died for in these incarcerations and that. So when you went for the figures, you ended up with 99% of people were not brutalised by police were not uh, 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 you know, handled by corrective services officers in, in, in an incorrect way. And then you, you just go through some of this stuff and, and, you, and you know, you look at you know, the reasons why uh, uh, there, there's this uh, incidence and that. And the biggest question for me, and this is why I'm not too happy with Minister Wyatt today when he come out and said he's going to look at a, tar a target for incarceration rates and how they reduce that, uh, you know, setting a number and then reducing it every year uh, for the next 10 years or so is not the way to go. What we've got to do is completely 
focus on the, uh, reducing cr criminal activity within Aboriginal communities, and we've got to we've got to get people educated, get kids to school, get them educated, to get to university or a trade, and we get them into jobs, and that will be the three things that will make the big difference. There's a lot of fantastic stuff you said there, Warren, which we will get into in due course. But what we want to ask you first is, do you think Australia has a problem with systemic racism? If yes, how does that manifest itself? And if no, where does that idea come from? Uh, it's, it's, it's an idea that's been around. Look, uh, the first 13 years of my life, uh, uh, I, I spent in a segregated, um, uh, uh, under the uh, New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Act. Uh, we, uh, we, and my father had to carry around a, a uh, what we call dog the dog tags, what the uh, Aboriginals called dog tags, which was a, a sort of like a uh, looked like a passport, had a photo in you, and it gave you certain um, uh, things that you could do, like you could send your kid to public school, you could uh, you could uh, you know work uh, at, at late at night and do other things like that. Those things don't exist since 1969 in New South Wales. Those laws have long gone after the 67 referendum and 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 we've got a we've got a you know there, there were structures in place that uh, restricted aboriginal people but that's all gone that's for the last 40 years 50 years they don't exist anymore in fact people bend over backwards to help indigenous people you can point out literally hundreds of education scholarships and programs of getting kids uh, in, in, the, in the school and getting into, into university. I chair um, the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation and we, we've raised, can you believe this, in 10 years, we've raised $128 million to help kids go from year seven to year 12, go through their, uh, through their undergraduate degree and postgraduate degree. And we've had a thousand people, in, Aboriginals in that program in the 10 years. So that's a, you know, that's a hundred people a year. We've got 20 officers now within the armed forces, the Navy and the, and, and the Army who, who went through that program. We've had doctors, we've, uh, we've got engineers working for BHP and Rio Tinto and other companies. And we've had, um, I don't know if this helps civilization, but we even produced a lot of lawyers <laughs> <laughs> through this whole process and journalists and other people. If we're a systemic racist country, we wouldn't have been able to raise that amount of money. We would not have been able to go out to the community and say, let's help some Aboriginal people uh, get educated and to get uh, and get a career and build a career for themselves and move forward. You look at how much money the federal government spends. This is the federal government alone, and that's $30 billion annually on Aboriginal people. Five, the four to five billion directly that Aboriginal people, and the other the other twenty five billion and that through other programs and that of support, and then you add the state and territory on uh, governments on top of that, and you're seeing a lot of money being spent in this area. And that I have not met in the last 30, 40 years a person who an Australian person who does not want to resolve the poverty issues the criminal issues and other issues that are plaguing Aboriginal communities. Look, there are racists out there. We're like, no, we're not any different than any other country. Every people has has racist and idiots around. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. But just because we have some 
and it's only a small, small minority, doesn't make us a racist country. This country has bent over backwards to make up for the ills of the past. And I just, you know, so I do, and I'm a very proud Australian and I love this country. I look at what this country has achieved. We've had, uh, we've had uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the first people, who they call them. We've had uh, the, the British uh, come here and colonise and, and, and built the institutions that we have, the law courts and the, and the Westminster form of government. Uh, we've had uh, in, in the, uh, the, the capitalist uh, 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 market system. Uh, we've had the migrants who have come here, especially the millions of migrants who have come here after the Second World War, who have worked hard, come from very tough, bad backgrounds, and help build the economy of this country. Now, we've had hundreds of uh, cultures and races and people of different faiths and, and, and even atheists and everything come here and we've, been, uh, we've, and we've accommodated all that stuff. And we, in fact, I reckon we've been the most successful country in the world in doing this. I, I always challenge people, find a, a, a country that has done better than us. You know, and even if you find one or two, we're still in the top five. We have done an incredible, amazing job in this country. So we're not a, a racist country. There's all this craziness about white privilege and, and you know, and I, and I just sit there and smile and laugh sometimes when I see some of these, uh, some of these, uh, you know, white people who are bending over backwards, apologising and bending the knee and all this stuff. You don't have anything to apologise for. You don't have any reason to be bending the knee. Uh, because what you know, name me a country in the world that ha that hasn't had a bad history or had a brutal beginning. You look at any country in the world, and they've all had those tough times. And then, and then you look at what I judge a country on is how they move forward, and and put those things to the past. Yes, we need to learn about them. Yes, we need to understand them, and and, and that's our education to do that. Because that way we make the country better. And this is what we've done. We've been working on this experiment for 200 and something years now. And I'll tell you what, we're doing a pretty good job. One internet meme that's now becoming really popular in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests is the idea of defund the police, as if, uh, you know, um, Indigenous Australians can't trust the police because of the history of brutality, so therefore we, don't, we shouldn't have the police anymore. Now, I just want to get your reaction to that idea. Well, look, in, in historical, in a, well, first of all, the first reaction is you, 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 you've got to be completely bonkers if you're going to uh, defund the police, you know. Uh, look, as I, I talk about that Aboriginal police officer who, in the Queensland police, he says, you know, in, in, in his interview of the day, he's, he goes out every day. Uh, he, he, he deals with road traffic accidents, pulling people out of cars, broken bodies, going home to parents and, and relatives and, and telling them that their son or daughter has been seriously injured or died. He, go, he goes out there and, 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 and deals with rape cases, child abuse cases, domestic violence cases, people who are robbing and stealing. He deals with drug addicts and, and alcohol, drunken alcoholic people. He deals with, you know, the people uh, who are on the streets and that, and he gets, and he gets spat on and he gets, and he gets, uh, and, uh, he's been bitten. Uh, he's had, uh, he's had to fight and wrestle with people and stuff like that. And, and, and this is what they do every day. 
and if, and, the, and the, they do the job that most people, I'd say 99.9% of the population wouldn't do. And, and, and they keep us safe and they, and they look after us. And so these people, and so this, to come around and say because uh, Joe Blow, who did something wrong, you know, look, uh, look at what happened to, to, to George, George Floyd up there. But the system works. He was arrested, he was charged, and, he, and the fellow officer who were who, uh, with him were charged as well. Now, that's going to play out over the next year or, or so in regard to the court system and that. But that's what happened, you know. So this, this idea that police are, are just dreadful, crazy, homicidal maniacs, it's just, just this living in fantasy world. The problem we have in Australia is that uh, the, the history, when you go back to the history, and, and I was just talking about the New South Wales Aboriginal Protection Act, and you look at all these acts all around Australia leading up to the 1960s, uh, was that the police had to enforce them. So there was a problem between the police and the Aboriginal people because we saw them enforcing the law at, at the time, and that was discriminatory against us. So we're dealing with that history of that, but the police over the last 50 years, ha again, has confronted those issues and has been going out there and working with uh, Aboriginal people and about resolving that uh, history and they've done a fantastic job of that. Now, we, you know, we, we've had uh, Aboriginal police officers and that now we need a lot more to be involved in the, in, the, in the policing and stuff like that. But this nonsense about defunding the police, are these people completely mad? You know, who are you going to call when someone's breaking in your door? Who's gonna, who are you going to call when someone's robbing your shop? Who are you going to call if some drunken idiot wanders out of a pub and just hits you on the street? Uh, you know, I, I just, this is just total craziness and total crap. So, Warren, is there any reforms that you would make at all to criminal justice in Australia? We've seen a friend of the show, Anthony Dillon, talk about how statistically actually non-Indigenous people are more likely to die in custody than Indigenous yeah. people. But in addition to that, as the, one of the central claims of the protesters is over 400 Indigenous people have died in custody, and you explained a lot of them were due to uh, suicide and old age and things like yeah. that. But yeah. um, there hasn't been any prosecutions at all. Do, is there any le changes you'd make to criminal justice? Uh, well, look, so there, has, there, has, there has been investigations. In that. You know, I go back, to, I'm old enough to be around when the deaths in custody uh, were first raids in the 1980s. And then it was uh, dealing, then the, uh, the pressure to, to look at a royal commission into it. You know, we had John Pat, uh, who was brutally beaten to death in Western Australia. We had Eddie Murray, who was uh, found in a police cell, uh, uh, died in a police cell under a very suspicious, um, uh, you know, circumstances. And that now Eddie Murray, of course, that, that there was there was uh, there was nothing was done about that. But John Pat, they arrested the police officer. They went to court. They went through a process. Uh, the, the death of Mr. Dumaji on Palm Island, you know, that, that, uh, where he died in the police cell. There was a, that, that there was, they got uh, the Supreme Court Chief Justice of New South Wales was an independent person. There's Sir Lawrence Street to investigate that. He came out with the conclusion that there has to be charges laid. There were charges laid of manslaughter and murder, and and that went through the court system. 
So this idea that nothing's been done is not entirely true. I think when when, the, when some of these leaders who come out there and get on the street demonstrate and they, they talk about this, this number, it's not a real number. And it's also, uh, you know, you're talking at a very, very tiny uh, percentage of the things. Now, of course, there's been dreadful stuff that had needed to be fixed. Uh, Mr Ward, for instance, who was in the police van that travelled across... Uh, Western Australia, de- uh, the Pilbara, uh, to take him to the police lockup, was cooked in the back of the police van because the air conditioning broke down. Uh, that was a dreadful, stupid thing that happened at the, uh, because they should have uh, had a, 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 a process in place where they kept on checking on the prisoners, especially when they're doing the four-hour drive. And when they get to the other end, they find they've got a, a human being who has just been roasted alive in the back of a, of a van. Yes, there has to be better ways that you have to look at checking people. You have to make sure that when you're, when you're doing escorts and taking people to court and, and, or taking them to jail, there has to be a proper process in place just to check on them. Even if there's nothing wrong, you've got to check on them just in case they had a heart attack. Or something else happened. So that does need that. That's now been put in place. In fact, every every thirty seconds, uh, when you're in a in, the, in a police lockup van, now they check on you. There's a check. And so, so yes, there are a lot more things we can do in that area. And also in regard, like the uh, seeing uh, George Floyd at uh, uh, just a horrific uh, uh, knee on the neck. And you know, why would anyone want to put a knee on the neck? Uh, is beyond me. So reforming those certain areas, but also don't go stupid. Like when you're handling a person who's on ice, who's just kicking around on the ground and and could actually, and I, I know police officers who have been injured and, and, and lost their jobs because, you, you know, that they were so badly injured uh, because of uh, because of dealing with people with those drugs. So have a bit of common sense when you're dealing with a person who's laughing out and having violent throws around, then you have to be pretty tough with them to, to control them. Otherwise, they do damage to themselves and they do damage to other people. So as long as we can put in place proper uh, uh, way of restraining people and dealing with it, I think we can do a great job. I was watching your appearance on Sherry Markson's show on Sky News, I think it was last weekend, uh, talking about... Uh, the other issues that are facing Indigenous communities and maybe potentially more serious issues. So for those who missed that appearance, what were the issues that we really should be focusing on when we talk about Indigenous affairs? Well, look, I always found it interesting when I was involved in politics uh, that you have... Uh, uh, when people sat down uh, to look at how they're going to win government, they said, OK, we've got to have economic management and how we can do that because that then pays for the hospitals and the pays for the police and pays for the schools and all that. Stuff. So we've got to have businesses and build that in, that environment for people to get jobs. And then when we spoke about Aboriginal affairs, we talked about welfare. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, what's good for, the, what's good for everyone else is good for Aboriginal people. The lesson we've got to learn, and you look at the top... Uh, life expectancies, the healthiest people, uh, the most educated people, uh, people who are, uh, have housing and, and, and that globally, you'll find that countries that in, the, in that top 30 level uh, you know, are looking at uh, that, that they have an economy and focus on how do you 
create that environment of investment, of businesses operating, which then leads to jobs and things. You go to some communities and, and you'll find generations of people who have not had a job. In fact, a 10-year-old kid pointed that out to me when I was talking about get educated, get a, get a job. And I said, well, you come from job world. So you have a history through your family, your parents worked, your grandparents worked. So you see that as natural. My parents have never worked, he said. My grandparents have never worked. So I see that as natural. And so, and I thought, gee, what a genius. This guy should be given a professorship straight away at Sydney University. Uh, it is true, you know, they don't, they come from a different world. So how do we change that? Well, we've got to invest in those communities. We've got to work with those people to get uh, that work ethic, get that, uh, get into jobs and that, because we know having a job, you're healthier than a person that doesn't. You know having a job, you have less uh, crime than you do when there's a community with no job. You have a wide range of things. Drugs and alcohol problems are reduced. Health is, is better. Housing and accommodation is better. So you create that environment. And one of the big things, of course, that is jobs and education go together. So you've got to have an educated workforce. So we need to train people and get them educated. We need to get kids to school and, and, and focus on those type of areas so they, have, they can build a career and be con, uh, productive for themselves, for their families and for their communities. Because if you don't do that, then this is where you get into all these problems. Warren, you wrote a piece in 2018 in Quillette, which was uh, talked about the dignity of work, which we talk about a lot here at the IPA. And it was a beautiful piece about how work had played such a central role in your family and making you the person you are today. I mean, a lot of our listeners might not have read that. So if you could just explain the role that work has played in your personal development and the development of your family, that would be great. Yeah. Well, it, 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 work is, uh, human beings, we're very social and we need to have, uh, uh, you know, a focus in our lives and that, you know, we haven't advanced too far from the cave, quite frankly. Uh, we like to socialise, we like to go out and hunt and gather and chase woolly mammals and, 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 and kill them and eat them and stuff like that. We need to provide and do things. Now, of course, in, as, as uh, the development of human beings in the societies and in the modern technology now, we still need this, this, this work. And we've seen it in the, in the, the pandemic at the moment with COVID-19. The mental health issues are really going to the roof. I spoke to Professor Ian Hickey at uh, Sydney University, the Professor of Brain and Mental, uh, mental Health. He, he says we're, we're, after, uh, we're, we're going to go to a massive spike. In fact, the suicides and suicide attempts in Australia have gone up a third and it's going to go up a lot more. So what, I, what, what, what I'm saying is that we need to have people working and we need to have people doing things, productive things. Now, for what happened for me, I was very lucky. I, I had, a, a, you know, really the journey started several generations ago and my grandparents uh, got a, a job as a, on a cattle station, you know, you could 1900 on a cattle station wasn't a... A, a pansy job. It was pretty tough wrestling cattle and branding them and doing stuff like that and the pay wasn't great. But he was able to, to, to bring that money home to, to my grandmother and, and put, and they saved it and they spent the money on the kids. And my father grew up and my, my mum and dad grew up thinking that was normal. That you go out, 
you work hard. Doesn't matter what the job is. My parents had this attitude of you could be the midnight man, which is the bloke in the old days used to come around and collect the toilet pans before they put sewage in. You could be that, and you could be a, a doctor or a lawyer. But you're both. They seen them both as contributors and people who are making a difference for their family and making a difference for their community by their taxes and by their community work and, and help. And, and my mother spent 30 years working in the tax shop at, the, at, at our local school. Now, it's, and she even did that for, for our grandkids, for their grandkids as well. They worked in the tax shop and did things. What that did for, for me was that that was normal. This idea of not working was not in my psyche. You know, it's like uh, my family grew up and that, that it was normal to work and it, and it was and it's virtuous to work. In fact, this is one of the problems of the Labor Party these days. The Labor Party was the Workers' Party. It was they they, they talked about the virtue of working. You know, whether you're a tradie or you're a labourer or you're a, again a doctor, a lawyer, or, or, or whatever, accountant or whatever. It was a virtue to go out and work because you you were able to provide for yourself. You were able to uh, not be a bludger on the system. You were able to uh, to be a uh, to, to feed your family uh, and 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 put a roof over their head. Uh, you were able to then uh, you know uh, be a contributor to your community and and that you, you know the sporting clubs and all these other things. So 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 this this is for me is something that we've lost now. I've, I haven't heard in years someone talking about work is a virtue. Work is a great honour, a person. My father had this simple line. If I asked about, I said, oh, what about Joe, Joe Blow? And, and he'd say, he'd either have an answer, he's a worker or he's not a worker. And as all the connotations of that was, if he's a worker, he's a good bloke. You know, Joe Blow is a good bloke because he actually goes out and gets money and works hard to try and feed himself and feed his family. Uh, Joe Blow, not a worker. Well, he's a bloke who's just, you know, he he's not feeding himself. He's, he's always bludgeoning with other people. He's a lazy person. He's not feeding his family. He's not cooking after his family. And that was his attitude. And that was my mother's attitude. That was my grandparents' attitude. So that that's what... You know, that's what uh, my family thought was normal. Now, of course, my kids and that. Uh, so we come from, a, 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 in, in several generations, we've come from, uh, you know, a, a, a roustabout in, in, in a cattle station, uh, uh, working very hard, uh, getting kicked in the head by horses and cows, to, uh, to uh, university graduates, uh, to, people, uh, to family members running their own businesses now. Uh, in employing other people and giving them the opportunity to improve their life. And so it's been an incredible thing. So my line is the best thing that person can do in life is one, get a job, or a person gives a job to someone else because you not only change that person, you change generations. Warren, just just quickly, have you got any thoughts on uh, land rights legislation? We know that the um, the highest instance, instances of dysfunction in Indigenous communities are people that live on Indigenous lands under land rights. To the extent that those land rights prevent private enterprise, prevent you from opening your, uh, owning your own home, uh, preventing you from opening a business, do you have any thoughts on how that could be reformed to ensure that, as you say, more business can happen and more people can benefit from uh, the dignity of work that you've been talking about? Yes. 
Look, the, 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 the problem we, we got, if, if people don't realise that prior to the 19, 1975, prior to the early 70s, uh, most Aboriginals worked. You know, the statistics tell us they worked. But they didn't work in pretty jobs like my grandfather and they didn't get a great amount of pay like my grandfather. Black, white or brindle, if you were a, a, working in a cattle station, we all got the same. But then welfare hit us. And, and, and I think people forget that the name, the word sit-down money was the eldest. These, these people were drovers and shearers and fruit pickers and they were tough people, you know. And, they, and they're also very, very cultural people. They, they still did their ceremonies, they still did their, their stuff, and, they, and a lot of them were Christians in that as well. And, and these people, when, when the government come to them and said, look, you know, if you're... If you, if you, out of work, you don't have a job, we, we can give you money. And they just they sat there and went, what, if we sit down and do nothing, you're actually going to just pay us to do nothing. And, and they said, yeah, virtually, that's, that's what we want to do. And uh, they just couldn't believe it. They, they sat there and said, this is unbelievable, the sit-down money. You're paying us to sit down and not do nothing. And that, that with land rights, has caused a number of problems. Uh, now, the land rights movement, that to getting land back to make ourselves self-sufficient and, and, and cultural and doing cultural activity was lost through that welfare process. So people got, got these lands and that, and then... Uh, they didn't. They didn't. They lost the, the work ethic. I just cannot believe that that generation up until the 1970s were these hardworking, employed people, and then within what? Here we are, 50 years later, 40 years later, and we've got generations of people who have not worked. And that's and that's because when you, you, you we did two things. We one we brought the welfare issue in, and two we we separated Aboriginal people from the main economy. And having been shifted out on, on, on the, some of these homelands and that, people lost that contact with the rest of the, rest of the community and, and lost that economic opportunities that could have been done. They're starting to, to get into this area a lot more now. There's over 6,000 Aboriginal who work in the mining industry for some of these remote communities and that. Uh, in fact, mining, despite what the, the Sydney and Melbourne media say, the Aboriginals are very happy with mining because it has brought incomes to their communities. Uh, we're slowly getting back. And when when I was working as the, uh, the chair of the Prime Minister's uh, Indigenous Advisory Council, we, we totally tipped Aboriginal politics upside down. We just said, we're going to focus on the economy. That's what we're going to do. And that's what we need to do with, with the land rights and the native title stuff. We need when you know, all this. There's a whole heap of cattle stations that have been handed back to Aboriginal people, which are just run down and fallen apart. There are some successful ones, but for the for the majority, they have just been a disaster. And that is because we've taken people away uh, from from their their ancestors, their, their grandparents generation, their great-grandparents' generation, about the work ethic, and we just, we just made them welfare dependency. And you see that across Australia. It's not only a particular Aboriginal problem. You look at some suburbs in Western Sydney and, and you see just family breaks down, people or generations of people who hadn't had a job, and this is just a disaster. Uh, Warren, you've been really generous with your time. I've got one last question, and it's 
So this is a, an awesome, awesome conversation and one that is really important because there's so many issues here. There's so many people that get affected by these sort of decisions. But every time, you know, when a, when a white person starts talking about dignity of work in indigenous communities or some of this other stuff that we're talking about, it's pretty quickly shut down as either being racist or like, oh, that's a dog whistle to say that uh, there's these issues. And I just feel like, uh, you know, why people could be so scared of being called racist in a public sphere for talking about these things that none of these issues get resolved and there's no progress being made on any of this. So I I just want to say, like, is everyone's complete fear of being called racist and how everyone just completely tightens up every time race gets brought into an issue actually holding the conversation back and holding development back in these areas that so much look uh, it, it is and it's been a deliberate move quite frankly uh, i'm i have conversations like this every day where people come to me and say oh we saw your article we, it's great you know that you can come out to say these things and, and we agree 100 percent with you but we can't say it because we're white and, 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 and I just, you know, and that's because they are nervous about being called racist and being called, you know, this white privilege nonsense. Now, what I can't believe, because I, I, as I said, I'm the first 13 years of my life, I lived in that process of segregation and stuff. My father, when he, he, he carried his dog tags with him all his life, and the reason was that when young Aboriginal people come up to him and said, oh, this is a racist society, and that, and he used to say to them, you don't know what racist is. I had to carry this document uh, for 50 years, yeah, 50 years of my life to go out and get a job and get my kids to be able to go to school. And he said, so you like get everything. You get, you know, it says stop complaining and actually, you know, get moving and, and, and take the opportunities there. In fact, I heard a young Aboriginal woman, which really I fell in love with her actually. She said, she stood up and said, there's never been a better time to be Indigenous and a better time uh, to, you know, for, for the opportunities that, that Australia is providing for Indigenous people. And they are. We just need to stop this nonsense. Now, they're deliberately talked by the left, and it is mainly the left, who beat people up and say, oh, you white people, you say, oh, you blokes should get a job, which is, I say to my kids or I say to someone else, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, white people can't say that. If, if, if You know, you're paying your taxes, it's your money that, that people are living off. Uh, you have every right to talk about these things. Uh, this idea of shaming and, 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 and bullying people, which has just gone in my mind, it's just gone completely mad at the moment. You know, the word racist, when I was a young bloke and you were called a racist, you were a pretty, really bad person. That is not the case today. It's just become a meaningless word. So I encourage people to talk about it. And this is one of the reasons why I write so much in that, because I want, because people have been silenced about these things, I want to... And they say, oh, I'm, going, I'm actually using my Aboriginality to, to, to get us back to the right conversation and, and get everyone to be involved and be free to talk. When people come up and say, oh, you don't mind if we say that? And I said, I'm happy for you to say these things. And, and, if it's, and, if, and if I don't agree, I'll tell you I don't agree. But if I agree, I'll tell you uh, I agree. But you have the right to say it. 
Brilliant. Uh, Warren Mundine, AO, author of a bunch of books, uh, Black and White, Speaking His Mind, one of the great followers on Twitter as well. So check out Warren Mundine's Twitter as well. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I uh, had a bit of fun. Thanks, <laughs> Warren. Okay, uh, we're now joined on the show once again by good friend of the Young IPA podcast and one of Looking Forward's best characters. So for people that haven't listened to Looking Forward yet, when Andrew Bushnell comes on, that's when you should be listening as much as you listen all the time. Uh, but anyway, Andrew Bushnell, research fellow here at the IPA, heads up our criminal justice stuff. Uh, welcome to the show. Cheers. Yeah, no, that's a big endorsement. I'll try and live up to it. Also loves a draft, Bushnell. Does love a draft. Was in the first two drafts. Yes, so very good point. I think, I, I think I won at least one of those. Uh, oh, not according to not the start people. That again. Uh, now, sorry. <laughs> Democracy simply does not work. <laughs> Just a good uh, start to product. this uh, conversation. So, Let's talk about protests. <laughs> yes. Uh, now... Tough week for Australia, just like a lot of protests, a lot of anger in the streets. So what Pete and I wanted to do with this interview was go, there's a lot of shouting from each side at each other at the moment. So what we want to do is like go, okay, so what is the actual conversations that we could be having? So our questions are going to be basically taken hopefully as directly from the mouths of Black Lives Matter protesters as possible. I'm, uh, I'm not trying to editorialize with our questions, but to take... The questions that are getting asked at these rallies or maybe the statements or maybe demands that are being made and get your take on them because, uh, you know, you're not a guy that would have gone to those protests per se, but you do... Did you go, Andrew? <laughs> no, I've never attended a protest. Neither have I. So, uh, but, you know... That's you... my privilege talking. Yes, apparently. exactly. Sorry, but just I, I want to get the perspective of someone that spent a lot of time talking about criminal justice mm. and talking about these issues just to see, like... Uh, you know, wh where the conversation is and what grounds we can bridge. Yep. So big intro to that. And and I would add to that, and we'll talk about this, Andrew's research into criminal justice is really important right now because it actually speaks to a lot of these claims. Exactly. But we'll get to that. All right. So I guess we'll start off with this one because the central claim of Black Lives, protests, Black Lives Matter protests in Australia is to stop Indigenous deaths in custody. Now, the, cla uh, the claim is that more than 400 Indigenous people have died in police custody since the Royal Commission into the problem was held in 1991. Uh, now, research by a friend of the show, Anthony Dillon, which Pete mentioned in the Warren Mundine interview, which mm -hmm. has already played, and Warren Mundine talked about that as well, uh, says that non-Indigenous Australians are more likely to die in custody than Indigenous Australians. But either way, the ideal number of deaths in custody is zero. So what are the best ways to limit this? Well, so I think that, that your question there, like that the, the point you've hit on, I think is actually the really difficult part. I'll say something general first, which I think is that, um, and, and from working in criminal justice um, in this space, just, just as a general point, I think um, one of the biggest hurdles to any reform in this space is actually um, that we need to change the way we think about incarceration a little bit. Um, um, so the, the punishment... Incarceration is because we don't have the death penalty or, or corporal punishment. Um, the um, incarceration is the most severe um, penalty that we have. Um, and so you can see that as a matter of proportion, it should be directed towards or used against the most serious crimes. But the punishment itself is the deprivation of liberty. That's what it's called. It's you don't get to be out in the community. You get to do what you want. That's the punishment. And yet a lot of people seem to associate prison and I think this is very unfortunate. They seem to associate it with a kind of brutality. So when someone is sentenced to prison, you'll often see commentary about, oh, you know, this guy is you know, going to be assaulted and things like that in prison. And we need to change, I think, as a general point, our expectation that prison will be this kind of place where um, you will suffer 
even more than you do simply by being incarcerated. So to the, um, the more specific point about Indigenous deaths in custody, I think, so first I think the first way to address that is to address it in a general way by changing the way we think about incarceration, changing what, the way we use incarceration to reform people. And I think that um, will benefit Indigenous people in the same way that it benefits non-Indigenous people. Um, but I think on the more specific point, um, you know, a number of the deaths in custody, I think, are um, associated with a kind of despair. So a lot of them are, are suicides. They're young people who um, get locked up and they don't see a future. And a, a number of them are, are people who haven't even been convicted yet. They've, they've killed themselves while on remand. And obviously this is extremely serious because... Um, not only is this the end of a young life that, um, you know, and, and a, a young life that, that could have turned around. I mean, this is the other thing that um, we really need to think about in criminal justice is the possibility um, for some people that their lives can be better. Um, and that's, that should be, you know, at the top of our minds always. But so there's this kind of despair element. And I think um, that's where we need to start because that comes from, uh, I think, at least... In some, in some occasions, from a sense of alienation from the system, that once you're embroiled in the system, once you're in it, that's it. You won't get, a, you won't get treated fairly. Your life is basically ruined. There's nothing left to live for. Um, and so I would say that in a, in a general way, um, our, our criminal justice system has probably not done a great job of... Um, it's not done a great job of reforming people. We know that because the recidivism rates have been so high for so long. Um, they have been around around 58% um, of people who are in prison have been in prison before. That's even higher among Indigenous people. It's in the 70s. Um, and so we know that it's not reforming. But part of that is actually just that we're not thinking about incarceration in the right way. And this feeds into some of these underlying problems that Indigenous people have in their interactions with the system. Okay, so an another further claim from the protesters is that, um, firstly, so over 400 deaths in custody in the last 20, 30 years, whatever it is, and they say that no one's been prosecuted for that. Um, Warren Mundine said in an interview with him, but there had been investigations and things like that. Uh, sorry, my screen just disappeared. I was asking this question. What... One of, the, one of the claims from the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance was no police officer or station to investigate another police officer for any claim of misconduct made against them and all future investigation to be held by an independent body that includes Aboriginal representation. Is that something that you would support or how would you feel about that? The, my understanding is that usually police misconduct claims are um, investigated by, um, I think it's the Office of Police Integrity or some, some, inter, some police internal to the police. Yep. Um, but that's not to say that there are no mechanisms mechanisms for independent review of the police force. Uh, in Victoria, IBAC has the power to investigate the police under its own motion. That is, it doesn't need to be directed by the minister to do it. It can raise an inquiry into the police at any time uh, under its own powers. Um, we also have, uh, I think, um, the ombudsman, if I remember correctly, a few years ago, I think 2008, I want to say, but I would need to look that up, but I think there was an ombudsman uh, investigation into the police. So it's not like there are no independent mechanisms for reviewing the police. Um, and I think 
Um, but I would say in general, um, that the issue here is something like um, the police processes internally are quite opaque. Um, I, I do think that there's a reason, for example, that police have quite a strong union um, and why all police really join the union, and that is because um, policing brings you into contact with a lot of, a lot of people um, and, uh, you know, it's easy to be accused falsely of something. Um, people, there is an animosity towards the police among people who routinely, routinely come into contact with them because they have or are accused of committing crimes. Um, and so the police union actually exists for a reason. Um, and if you talk to um, police, they'll tell you that that's, that's really important for them um, because otherwise they just don't think that they could do their jobs. Um, but that said, I think um, there's certainly room, I think, for more engagement. Now, whether you would say, like, any specific investigation must be run through some community group um, representing Indigenous people or anyone else, I think that's a bit problematic, right? The oversight of the police is done by the police minister. The police minister is a member of parliament um, and we all have oversight of him through the electoral process. That's our system. Um, so if you want to get involved in electoral politics, you want to campaign against the police minister, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, we know that in Victoria we've had corrupt or um, police ministers act inappropriately, use their powers inappropriately. Um, so I think that's, that's fine, but I would, um, and we might come to this later, I don't know, but um, I would emphasise the universality of the system as one of its strengths. Um, that the moral force of the law, and in particular the criminal justice system, actually depends in a, in a really important way on uh, our equality under that system um, and our treatment um, as, as, in a sense, interchangeable citizens. And I think um, I, would, I would hesitate to, to say that we should go any further down the path of separating us out in an institutional sense. Um, and that, and that, that said, it might be the case that periodic reviews by IBAC or by the Ombudsman are not enough. Um, but I, again, I think that's a matter of f for the political process. Just with police looking after, uh, sorry, uh, the police investigating police or, you know, the integrity units, uh, there's been two cases this week which to me sort of highlight that public sector unions in America, and I don't know if the same issue uh, is the same in Australia, but... Uh, you know, they can sort of go, okay, how do we protect the police officer before getting into the thing? So we saw in Buffalo where there was that footage of the police officer pushing the 75-year-old guy to the ground. The official report that got filed said the man tripped of his own volition when the video emerges that that wasn't the case. Then investigations sort of changed. And then you also had the case of in Sydney where the police officer pushed the Aboriginal teenager to the ground and then Mick Fuller's on... Uh, the New South Wales Police Commission and Mick Fuller's on radio saying that he, quote, had a bad day. Like, to me, if I was in these protests, I would go, well, that's the police looking after themselves as opposed to really trying to get to the bottom of the issue and try to weed out bad sorts in the police academy. Yeah, but I think, again, I think that that is a, a failure of oversight um, in practice. It's not a failure of the model of oversight necessarily. Um, so... It, it, or at least it's not an endorsement of this particular idea that oversight needs to incorporate um, community groups in some way. Um, you know, so to make that to make that clearer, right? So if you have specific instances of abuse and they and they're caught, um, then of course 
um, there should be, you know, a mechanism for enforcing against that. And of course, people should um, use their power, their voice to, to make sure that that is followed. I mean, where it comes to light, um, I don't think anyone saw what happened in the United States um, with um, George Floyd and, and didn't see exactly what happened in that video. Um, I don't think you could possibly misunderstand what was going on there. Um, and of course, there needs to be a mechanism for enforcing that. I would say that it doesn't follow from that that um, all existing mechanisms um, are necessarily deficient as opposed to um, deficient in, in practice. All right, let's move on to a, another claim that Indigenous uh, that uh, protesters have been making, and that is that Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people in the world. Organisers said we make up less than 5% of the general population but account for 27% of the general prison population, 30% of women's prisons and 70% of youth prisons nationally. Is this down to systemic racism? And if not, what's it down to? Mm. Well, the, it's, it's not a claim. It's a statistical reality. Um, the disproportion is that extreme mm-hmm. um, and there's no getting around the fact that that is um, a very difficult question for our criminal justice system. Um, the incarceration rate of Indigenous men in particular is um, by far, well, I mean, by some measures, by far the highest of uh, any group in the developed world. Um, you know, we don't have reliable statistics for other countries, but then again, we don't compare ourselves to other countries that aren't... Um, of a similar standard of living. Um, and I think obviously that, that that does speak to some sort of issue in our society. Now, whether it, is, uh, it says that the criminal justice system or any other of our government systems is racist is uh, a little bit more tricky. I think you need to be careful with um, aggregates and mm. averages. Yep. Um, so for example, 90% of the prison population are men, but we don't say that the system is sexist, right? In fact, a lot of attention, if you talk to people who work in this space, um, particularly from the left side of it, um, will tell you that their their number one concern is the rising share of of female prisoners. Um, And I've actually been in rooms with them where I've had to say, well, I think you're probably barking out the wrong horse because the problem is largely a male one. But um, so I think you need to be careful about that. Um, The other thing you need to do is you, you need to unpack a little bit some of the other factors and this isn't to dismiss I'm, I'm coming back to this this point about racism but there are other other factors that we know are strongly correlated with um, your chances of being incarcerated um, indigenous people are on average younger than the rest of the population so if you correct for that um, the disparity narrows a little bit I think about 10 percent um, uh, what we call like uh, rurality um, so indigenous people live um, so the further out from the center that from the city centers you go um, into the regions the higher the proportion of indigenous people becomes um, but obviously the further away from the capital cities you go also the level of uh, service delivery diminishes as well um, what so do you mean wh- by service delivery sorry so like all of the things that you would um, rely on in your life here not just the things that the government provides for you say access to to job training and um you know uh, but also the private economy the actual jobs that you might do the the amenity the infrastructure uber um yeah so there's all these all these sort of luxuries that you depend on or 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 like to use in the city um and so the 
you know, Indigenous people um, disproportionately live in areas where it's harder for government to, to intervene, um, I think. And so that brings up this issue of, um, of access to justice, which I think is a real issue um, in, in this response. Um, so here, think everything from like availability of translators. I think it's easy for people who live in the capital cities to forget that we do have communities in Australia for whom English is not their native language um, among Indigenous populations. So getting, making sure they have translators. People who come from rural areas who are convicted of crimes, they often um, have to be uh, punished, uh, taken away. Like, for example, if you commit a crime in northwest of Western Australia, you can you know, be taken to Perth to be incarcerated. And part of the reason for that is obviously there's no prison in these small communities, but also there's no way of delivering an alternative to prison, right? And then there's other issues around stable housing. Um, so one of the main reasons why people get refused bail is because they can't provide a stable address. Um, we know that Indigenous people are more likely to um, move between a number of different addresses um, that their family are in possession of. Um, so it's, there are things like that that feed into this. Now, is this... Um, is this a question of racism? Well, I think to, to, give, to give the, the argument its due, the argument is not... There's two arguments here. One is that the criminal justice system in its own operation is itself racist, which is to say that there are police officers with discriminatory attitudes, judges with discriminatory attitudes, um, prison, office, uh, prison war officers, and all the way through the system at every level. Um, but then... The prison, the, the um, criminal justice system operates in a society in which these disparities that I've been talking about are apparent. Um, and so the broader issue, this is why they start saying it's not just systemic racism within the criminal justice system, but it's a structural racism in our society because these disparities exist. That's the argument. So it's, there's two levels to it. Um, now, obviously, where there are those attitudes for individual actors within the system, we can act to correct that, um, and we do. So like firing bad judges or getting rid of bad cops, like exactly. stuff like that. Yeah, and, and, and if, it, if it means that there has to be more accountability for these people, I mean, I think in Victoria we have judges that you would um, love to get rid of, um, but maybe for different reasons. But, um, and by get rid of, come on, I mean have them lose their jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not to be too severe about it, but I think... Um, the, um, but um, whether, this, whether this counts as racism is really that in, in the course of my lifetime, I'll answer it like this, in the course of my lifetime, the definition of racism has kind of shifted, right? So when, oh, I, was yeah. a, when I was a kid, I was taught that racism was a, a, a problem that emerges in relations between people. That if you adopt the wrong attitude towards people in your life, that's being racist, right? So if you say the you know deliberately hurtful things to people, or you um, dismiss other people's interests like that, um, then that's being racist. Now the argument racism now is defined in this this structural way that um, it's not actually a matter of intention, right? It's a matter of raw statistical fact, starting from the premise that if we are all equal, all outcomes will be equal, any inequality of outcomes must be traceable back to um, 
racism. But if you in, this, and this is where I think it gets um, really problematic, is that what's what's being deleted here is intention. Um, do we intend for our systems to produce these disparities? Or, and I wouldn't say produce, actually, I would say, do we intend for them to fail to ameliorate them? And I think that that's obviously not the case. Um, if you look at the level of spending that goes towards um, services specifically for Indigenous people, but more generally to address some of these under, underlying sociological realities um, that are associated with crime, is actually a vast amount of spending. Mm. Um, and so if you look at our intention, as we express through our representatives in the parliament, I think it's really hard to make out any kind of, if you like, mens rea or mental element for racism in this country. In fact, I would say the opposite. I would say it's very obvious um, that this country is not a racist country and it intends and takes steps every day to not be a racist country. And that counts. That counts a, a lot. It counts more, I think, than um, ongoing aggregate disparities, um, which... Uh, overall, hopefully, we, we will be able to, um, over time, um, narrow. I, I don't think anyone disputes that that's what we want, um, but I think it's almost a slander to say we're not trying. Uh, when I talked to some of my friends who went to the rallies on the weekend, like that was their central point. It was just, look at the statistical data, how can it be the result of anything other than a systemic racism? And I, like I said, what I'm glad I said what you just said, which is, Everyone in a position of power right now and everyone with a platform in public square is completely devoted to making sure that problem is going away. So, you know, like the intentions are good. The problem is still there, but the intentions and in solving the problem is good. Uh, I want to talk about the last claim that we want to talk about. So this comes from the Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, who were the organisers of the rallies in both Brisbane and Melbourne. And I want to be specific, this is coming from the PDF put out by the organisers of the Brisbane rally. Uh, their number one claim on their list of demands uh, circulated was the policing and justice system be dismantled, a system built on our blood, oppression, lies and paternalism cannot be reformed and systemic racism, ca systemic racism cannot end without the system change. Uh, so I don't, I don't really have a question there other than, like, how do you react to that? Uh, how do I react to that? Well, I think the first thing I would say about that is um, any rhetoric around, you know, in the United States it's called defund the police, but anything around abolishing the police or abolishing prisons altogether is simply an unrealistic starting point. Um, there's there's a reason that these institutions exist. Um, there's a lot of good that they do to keep us safe. Um, and so I think the proper position is to start with reform. And I know that the, the activists don't want don't to hear that necessarily, but um, they basically deal themselves out of the game with really extreme rhetoric. And mm. I've had this issue, so I've been working in criminal justice now for um, four years. And um, I've been in, in, in rooms with, with this kind of activist group of people who, who basically um, derail, I think, any chance of, of reform um, because they don't want to, to start from where we are. And I think that gets, a, that gets a, a, to a, a sort of a deeper issue with, um, you know, that, um, that we're bound by reality in all things. So you might say... Um, and I, and I, as I said, I, I think we are working to have a society in which um, we don't see that the, such disparate outcomes 
Um, do we want to call that equality, which is a, you know, a very strict mathematical concept? Um, you know, it implies something where there's there's absolutely no variance, right? Um, and I think that that's probably. I mean, in my view, that just like that gets off on the, the rhetorical wrong foot. I mean, what we want to have is a society that is getting better, um, where people have the opportunity to improve their lives, um, and that means. And this is this is the other bit that I would come to, is that this this idea that our systems must incorporate specific and separate voices for different communities actually misunderstands what our institutions are for, which is to to bring us together um, and to create empathy between us. So there is, at the base of this, there is something that I think is true, right? Which is that you and I can't understand what it's like to grow up as a rural Indigenous person and your confrontations with the police and how they play out. We don't have that experience. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, but what we do have is a set of institutions that um, aggregate over time people's experiences and communicate them in a way to us. So sharing our institutions actually creates, it actually means sharing that information and creates a little bit of uh, transparency. So it makes ourselves a little bit more intelligible to each other. And I would say that, that the worst thing that we can do is move away from that. We all, because, and I would say it like this, as a matter of fact, we all live together. Um, for better or worse, we're all in this together. This is our country. We share. I would say it. for better. Just yeah. For, like, I think no, it's no, no, exactly. Yeah. For better, and you know, this is our country. We share it, um, and our aspiration should be to have institutions that work efficiently to share that information between us, so that we can understand each other's positions. Um, and I think um, that only really works if our aspiration is to be one country. Um, and I would, I would say that that's the really hard bit. I think to communicate because um, when people feel like, um, and, and in this case, I think justifiably sometimes they feel like um, the system is almost set up to elide their experiences um, and just not engage with them, then they think, well, we need our own system, um, and I think that that's probably the wrong. I think that I think that that is the wrong attitude to take. I think. It's, it's got to be more about um, what can we do together um, to make sure we have this society. And, and, and some of these institutions that do communicate things to people, um, it's not like we don't know anything about what it takes um, to have a good life in a society like ours. And some of them, I would, I would venture, we know are true for everyone of all backgrounds. You know, you want to stay in school, right? You want to... Um, you know, you want, you want to have a career before you have, have children. You want to get married and stay married. Um, there are all these sort of building blocks of a good life that we know work. Um, and it's not unfair to, to say that our goal, should be, uh, uh, our goal should be to make sure that whatever truth or wisdom or information is contained in those things is universally available. Um, but we shouldn't shy away from the fact that we do know something, you know, we don't, I can't speak to your specific experiences um, and I probably know more about you guys' specific experiences than I do about other people's, but I do know something. Um, it's not me that knows it, right? I only know it by virtue of these things that we share. Um, and so I, I would, 
I guess there's a long-winded way of saying that. I think chucking out the system overall, a revolution, is actually, as always in history, wildly destructive because of all of these things that are so hard to replace. Um, and so, yeah, I would take, okay, I'm a cliche, but I would take a reformist conservative view of it and say, um, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. But on our side, I would say, let's not um, dismiss um, these kind of aggregate problems as you know, statistical artefacts that don't mean anything. So we're going to ask you a few questions now about your research, which criminal head of criminal justice research here at the IPA, and you've actually created over the last few years a lot of research and solutions to these problems which would really help with incarceration and the negative impact of over-incarceration and all that. Why don't you run us through a couple of things that you've done that would help reduce the amount of people that are incarcerated in Australia and be better for everyone and in, including Indigenous Australians? Yeah, so I, th I think one way, of, one way of thinking about it is that um, reforms to the criminal justice system overall should benefit Indigenous people to the same disproportionate effect that the current system affects them negatively, mm -hmm. right? If there's more people in the, in the incarceration system who are Indigenous and the incarceration, incarceration system, criminal justice system gets better, then obviously the beneficiaries of that, if you like, um, maybe that's not the best word, but um, will also be disproportionately Indigenous. But um, what does that mean? Um, so what, we, what we've been arguing now for, for four years, and we've you know, produced a lot of research now, tens of thousands of words, you can find it on, on the website under criminal justice, um, tens of thousands of words on the theme of rationalising the criminal justice system towards community safety. What we want is a system that actually does the thing that we pay it to do, mm. right? Which is to keep us safe. And in some ways, the system is not optimised or even close to optimised for that outcome. Um, incarceration um, is associated with reoffending, um, and so one of the things that we want to do, and and so I would say, more th about half of everyone who, about half of everyone who goes into prison. Um, will return to prison within two years of their release. And the longer that period extends, so by the time you're talking about, it, say, a 10-year period after release, it's almost everyone will come back. So clearly there's, there's something that's not working in the, on the, in the corrective aspect of the correction system, right? We get some benefit from taking people off the street. Um, this, that benefit is sometimes... Uh, left out of this conversation. I think we've tried to make the point that no, no, incarceration actually does work to reduce crime, but only for the duration that people are in there. Ideally, we'd have a system that works to lower crime overall. So rationalising the use of incarceration by doing a better job of identifying um, violent and higher risk offenders, and making sure those are the ones that go to prison, um, and non-violent lower risk offenders um, we punish them in some other way by bulking up community service, by using home detention, um, you know, fines, restitution orders. There's a number of options and you can pile them on top of one another. You can use them in combination. Um, but the idea is to uh, better identify people who can be punished in a way that doesn't involve the high cost and high likelihood of reoffending that we get from incarceration. Yeah. The way you put it in a report, which I really liked, was like separating between people that we're scared of and people that we're just mad at. And like if we're genuinely scared of like, if you can do what you did 
then we don't want any part of you in the community for the next 10 or 15 years because you might do it again. But if it's like, look, uh, you know, like uh, I'd say like a uh, tax avoidance or something like that, like it's something that, uh, you know, we're just mad at you for doing that. Um, maybe I got like tax... Uh, fraud? Yeah, yeah, fraud. Like we're mad at you for doing that. Like you're not going to beat anyone to a pulp because of you committed fraud, but we are mad at you for doing that. That's should They shouldn't be the same punishment. That's like, right. That, you don't that, go that, to that big building that, and can't come out. That's right. And what I would say about about that line, uh, mad at versus afraid of, is actually that this is a formula that was come up with by um, friends of ours in, in Texas um, at right, what's called Right on Crime, which is a conservative criminal justice reform um, organisation. Um, and the, the point that it's... There's two things to say about that. One is that the, the, the point it's trying to convey is exactly what you said, which is that there are... That one that the the unique function of incarceration as a punishment is that it takes people out of the community, and so we want to. But it's extremely expensive to do that, right? It costs in Australia about one hundred and ten thousand dollars per prisoner per year. Um, we spend um, more than four billion dollars a year just running prisons. It's not building them or anything, just running them. So it's it's incredibly expensive. So we want to think about um, what we're dedicating those resources to. The second thing I would say about that is that that language was developed by conservatives um, and that's because um, the system they had there in Texas, they determined, was simply unsustainable. Its spending was increasing too rapidly. Um, they were adding new prisons um, and building a new prison is extremely expensive as we're finding out here in Victoria. Uh, the new one down at Lara, I think the price now is $1.8 billion. Um, so the, what I would say is that, you know, that line that you've pointed out is actually, it's a really good line because it all, it conveys not just an important point, but also it's designed for a, a particular audience that is a really important constituency, which is your, just your normal middle-class voter who might be inclined to, to believe that the criminal justice system as it stands now is doing a good job. Um, he, I look around his suburb and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty safe. So it's obviously doing a good job. But the point is that uh, we, could have, we could have less crime, you know. We could have less crime and that, that's, a, that's a worthy goal, particularly since, um, you know, they're dipping into our pockets to try and achieve it. Yeah, it's a, there's such a similar uh, idea with coronavirus, which is like people are going like, okay, I'm safe right now, therefore our coronavirus response was a good one. And you go like, but you could have been safe with less restrictions as well. So, I don't know. I see yeah, a well, pretty clear analogy. I mean, this this is the thing. You can you can you can do things better. Mm. Um, and and again, this goes goes back to what we were talking about before, which is, um, you know, you don't need to you don't need to throw your hands up and say this system is completely hopeless. You can say, well, let's look at areas where it's not doing quite so well. Um, in our case, with criminal justice, um, we've put more and more people in prison. And their experience in prison doesn't really do all that much to stop them from offending again. So that's two, uh, I'd say, two big problems in our system. And it doesn't mean a revolution. It just means trying to be a bit cleverer about it. Um, and reducing, just, just for an example for the audiences, when we say, like, let's make prisons um, better at uh, reducing reoffending, what we're talking about here is, is things like, so, for example, we know that the strongest correlation between offending uh, or with offending is unemployment. Um, if you have a job, 
you're much less likely to offend and re-offend. So we've got people in our custody. We can do things to help make sure or improve their chances when they come out of, of getting a job. Um, so that's perfectly sensible. We've already, <laughs> we've already made the decision to, to incarcerate them. And we actually make two decisions. Every time we incarcerate someone, except in extremely rare circumstances, we make two decisions. One, to incarcerate them, and two, to let them back out. So of course we have an interest, having made the first decision, we have an interest in the state they're in when we make that second decision. And I think um, that sometimes gets left out of the discussion. Okay, Andrew Bushnell, uh, follow all his stuff uh, on the IPA website, all his work on criminal justice. And uh, yeah, look out for him on Looking Forward as well and on this podcast. Andrew, thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks, mate. Okay, thank you to Warren Mundine AO and Andrew Bushnell. Mm. Really interesting chats. And I've got to say, like, that's why I want to do a podcast yeah. and why I like doing podcasts, just like chats like that. Mm. Now, uh, as I said, probably the longest show we've ever done. We're going to fly through some stories. Some have had, unfortunately, hit the deck. Uh, I know you had one that you were looking forward to, Pete. I'm a little bit disappointed because in Dubbo, a woman called Jeanette Ambrose, who's 78 years old, killed a killer wombat with an axe. But we can't talk about it because <laughs> we've gone over time. To be so honest, Google that. That's that's the best part of the story. So I think we've given it the part we need. She but- raised the axe and killed it and said, not this time, fatso. <laughs> I don't know if she said that. Google it. When we make the movie of it, she will say that. Uh, let's talk J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling. There was a... Oh. This one's just, <laughs> this one is just, I need a break 2020. Uh, okay, DevX is an international development website. I've actually done a bit of DevX stuff for my uh, studies. Is that development of, economics? Like just, you know, stuff in about aid and why poor countries are poor and stuff like that. Right. So it's weird that they got themselves involved in this. But anyway, it happened. They wrote a piece called, uh, there was a piece on the website called Opinion, Creating a More Equal Post-COVID-19 World for People Who Menstruate. Now, J.K. Rowling tweeted out, people who menstruate, I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Now, J.K. Rowling is good at inventing words, and she did wumbun, wimpund, wimud, uh, obviously saying, you know, women. Uh, she told that to her 45 million, 40, 14.5 million followers. Now, she got the backlash from Twitter, as you can imagine, people saying they hated her, that she's transphobic. Uh, some people pointed out that some women don't menstruate, James. Some pointed out uh, that she took, should be talking about Black Lives Matters. She then tweeted out, if sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. It isn't hate to speak the truth. Now, I don't want to get involved in the actual debate, but I can't handle this, James. It's like, we've got a pandemic, we've got riots, we've got the economies down the bloody toilet. Just, can we just stop this stuff for like five minutes? Like, can't we just pause this? Pause this to when we're rich and happy again. Then we can argue about... I think it's just a product of the fact that we've got nothing to do. So might as well just yell JK Rowling. I just want to go like... We talked earlier in the show that Churchill was, you know, is, uh, you know, getting his statue defaced and stuff like that. Beat Hitler. Beat Hitler. JK Rowling has made so many characters retrospectively gay from the Harry Potter universe. (laughs) And it's just not okay. It's not enough. That's right. She said Dumbledore was gay, didn't she? She did. There was a few other ones as well. I'm pretty sure I'm not... a Big Harry Potter guys. Yeah, which is listeners a to this. Outrage. I've read the book and missed the movie. Doesn't like Harry Potter. Half, spell. half the books and probably three or four of the movies. Yeah. And they're fine. They're just not for me. <laughs> but anyway, my point is J.K. Rowling has done so much stuff like this and it's not enough because it's what have you done for me lately? Yeah. And what you did for me lately was be a turf. Yeah. And, and Churchill killing Hitler is not enough. Yep. 
I still can't get over that. <laughs> he killed Hitler. I didn't kill Hitler, but he defeated Hitler. But would he have killed baby Hitler? Just to reignite that debate. Churchill would have absolutely killed uh, Hitler. Let's, let's uh, steer this one back on track. Uh, all right, the last story I want to talk about <laughs> is we talk about how earlier in the show there's no more coronavirus fines after all these protests have happened. And yeah. any place that attempts to put in these fines lose credibility and one county over in california has said you know what goodbye credibility but Mm. we are sticking to the line so on june 2nd uh contra costa county california good lot of c's a lot of c's there so uh their health services department issued an updated shelter in place order that limited outdoor social gatherings to 12 people from the same social bubble but rescinded a mass gathering ban to allow for political protests up to 100 people so you can only hang out in groups of 12 mm. unless it's a protest, in which case 11. Like mm. the amount, uh, 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 100. Yeah. The amount of mental gymnastics that would take, Pete, but you're just go, you know what? Uh, we're ceding ground to the mob. The mm. mob has won this one, but the people that aren't that angry yet, we're going to still put laws in front of. Well, as it turned out, because of the pressure, they subsequently overturned the order, but they had it in place for a few days. And yeah. I think this- the fact that it even gets past the council yeah. stage without someone going like, isn't this just stupid? Well... Uh, that's a good point, James. And I think that you can never underestimate the intelligence of council people, of councillors. Overestimate or underestimate? Never underestimate the... Inter- you can You can never. You can't underestimate. You can't under... Oh, okay. Um, it actually, when I wrote that, I was like... Nah, that's a mental gymnastics that yeah. I... <laughs> you, could, you could be on this council, mate. Yeah. No, and it's like, oh, no one will worry about this. This will mm. get... No one will notice this. It's like, yes, they no, will, We will mate. notice they, it very quickly. They've been locked down into... And the thing about, you know, elderly African-American women is that they hate going to church and they love, you know, their young people going off to possibly violent protests. So they're really happy about this. Well done. You've, right. you've really, you know, acknowledged the African-American community. That's it for the show this week. Thank you to Warren Mundane and to Andrew Bushnell. Uh, yeah, really uh, big brain show. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Hopefully expanding your mind, giving yourself a few more perspectives than you had before. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys on Friday. See you, everyone. Thanks, Mitch. Bye.